Take your Bibles this morning. We're going to turn open to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 16. This morning, as we continue our way through the Gospel of Matthew, just two verses this morning. So Matthew chapter 16, and we're going to look at verses 18 and 19. And let's go ahead and pray before we open God's Word this morning. Our Father, thank You for Your Word. We're thankful that it is everlasting. We're thankful that we don't have to doubt what is contained in it, but that we can know it to be truth because it is breathed out by You and that You do not lie. We pray that you would write the eternal truths which are in it upon our hearts, that we would know your word and that we would know its truth. In Christ's name we pray, amen. This is the holy and errant word of God, Matthew chapter 16, verses 18, 19, and 20. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And though the grass withers, and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. You remember last week we witnessed the great confession by Simon Peter where he said in answer to Jesus' question of who do you say that I am, Peter then boldly professed, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter makes a bold statement about Christ, and now Christ, in our passage this morning, makes a bold statement about Peter. Jesus says to Peter, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And here Jesus gives us the very foundation of the church. I want to look at this passage in three ways this morning. First, I want to look at the church's foundation, and then I want to look at the church's promise and then finally look at the church's authority. So the church's foundation, the church's promise, and then the church's authority. Now, there are certain texts in the Bible that I think, unfortunately, they were meant to bring us together, and they often become the source of division. There are a lot of different texts like that. I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13, that wonderful text where Paul is laying out before the church, the body of Christ, that there are all of these gift, different gifts within the body, and yet we are one as the body. There are some, like Chip this morning was thinking, he's playing the piano, he's playing the guitar, and he can put together budgets and he can manage staff. He has incredible gifts. And then... There are people like me. My wife texts me in the middle and says, your mic is on, you're singing with Chip. Uh, Some of us don't have as many gifts. Uh, 
as others, but we're one body. We're meant to be one. And yet, 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 has often been a source of contention within the body of Christ because of the gift of tongues that is there, and it's a passage that's used to divide. There are other doctrines, I think. The doctrine of baptism, it's meant to speak of our unity together. We're united in one Lord and one faith and one baptism, and yet it's caused division in the church. Maybe more, or surely more than any doctrine in the church has been the Lord's table. This this sacrament that was given to the church that we call communion, because it not only speaks of our communion with God, but our communion with one another. And yet, in the history of the church, there's been nothing that's divided the church more than what we believe about the Lord's Supper, what's happening there, and what's not happening there. Our text this morning is one of those passages as well. And we have to address the division that has been brought about by this passage, which I think was meant very clearly to show the church that it's one and that it has one foundation. There are two primary errors that we need to address when we come to this passage. The one is the Roman error, and the other is the Protestant error. The Roman error makes too much of Peter, the person in this passage, and the other, the Protestant error, makes too little of Peter in this passage. And I want to look at that this morning. As many of you are aware, in this passage, Jesus uses a play on words in the Greek text. There, there are two different forms of the Greek word rock here, that, that name that is used for Peter. He, he says, Peter, which is the Greek word Petros, he says Peter, the rock, Petros, and then Jesus uses a feminine form of that same word, Petra. It's not just a a famous Christian band, it's a Greek word, the feminine Greek word for rock, Petra, when he says, on this rock I will build my church. So the Greek, if you were to read the Greek of this text, it would be, and I tell you, you are Petros, and on this Petra, I will build my church. Now, the Roman church would say that the foundation of the church is Peter because of this. It would say that he's the foundation on which all of the church is built upon, and they believe that Jesus is making that claim here in this text, the person of Peter, the rock. It's the foundation on which the church is erected. And then the successors to Peter in Rome are those whom the church continues to be erected upon. Those different bishops in Rome are are called the Pope, the Supreme Pontiff, the Pontifex Maximus is the official language. If you look at the coat of arms of the papacy, you can look it up later today, it it has a crown on it, a tiara. It's the papal crown. It speaks of authority. It speaks of rule. It speaks of headship. And if you were to look behind that crown, you will see that there are two keys that are crossing behind the crown there. And that 
is in reference to this passage, that the Pope has the ability to bind and loose. He has the keys of the kingdom. And in the modern era, one of those keys is gold, which speaks of his ability to bind in heaven and to loose in heaven. And the other key is silver, which speaks of his ability to bind and to loose on earth. And then if you look at that seal or that crest of the papacy, you will see that there is then a, at the bottom of the keys, there is then a a rope or a thread that ties them together down at the bottom. And that is meant to convey that both of these powers are in the hand of the Pope. He rules. He above all others in the church. And and that was established here in Matthew 16. That's the Roman view. Now, Peter is important. The, The church of Rome is right about that. He's quite important. We don't want to overreact against this error, as Protestants have been prone to do over the centuries. We tend to overreact against Mary, and we tend to overreact against Peter. Now, listen. Mary would be weeping tears today if she saw people were praying to her in this world, and if she heard people suggesting, as many have, that she should be called co-redeemer with Christ, she would weep tears, and she is, proverbially, we could say, would be turning over in her grave. But we overreact by treating her simply as another person in the Bible. In one sense, she is just another person, but in another sense, she is not just another person. As the angel said to her, you are the most blessed among women, Mary. She bore the Christ, the God-man, into the world. And so we can honor her, we can respect her without worshiping her. And the same is true of Peter. Peter would absolutely weep today knowing that his name has been used throughout history to accrue power and riches and prestige. He was just a man, but he was also quite a man. He's unique, even among the twelve apostles. He's clearly the leader of the disciples, often serving as their spokesman. Even in this passage, Jesus asks all of the disciples, who do you say that I am? And it's Jesus that we saw last week, speaks for all of the apostles. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And after Christ's ascension, He is clearly one of the foundational leaders in the early church. But it's equally clear that Peter does not occupy some place of extreme primacy in the church, as Rome argues. And I want to give you just quick, quickly five evidences in the New Testament that Peter was not anointed here in Matthew 16 as the Pontifex Maximus. First, the Gospels don't give Peter this position. If Peter was given the place of primacy, then the following passage in Matthew 18 makes absolutely no sense. It's just two chapters later in Matthew 18, where the disciples are having this discussion among themselves about who is greatest in the kingdom of God. Now, if that had already been settled in Matthew 16, 
that Peter was the greatest, then why in the world are they discussing this in Matthew chapter 18? They weren't convinced that Peter was given them a position above the rest. If they had, they wouldn't have had the need to have this discussion. And clearly, neither does Jesus believe he had done this with Peter. When they're debating this fact, who is the greatest among them, Jesus doesn't point to Peter and say, there he is. No, he takes a child, and he places a child among them. And he says, unless you have faith like this child, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, that passage makes a lot of sense from a Protestant standpoint. We'll return to that this morning. You also have in the Gospels where the mother of John and James approach Jesus, and she asks if one can sit on Jesus' right and one can sit on Jesus' left. Now, why does she come and ask that? Because it hadn't been established. And John and James are clearly aware that she's doing that because they're standing there. There's a reason that this question had to be asked because no disciple has been given primacy over the others. And Jesus doesn't reply by saying, listen, one of those spots is already taken by Peter. He doesn't say that because no such place was reserved for him. Second, you'll notice that Peter is not the only apostle with authority in the early church. James, Jesus' brother, had great authority in the book of Acts, and he's not alone. John has authority, and he's not alone. Paul has authority, and it doesn't seem to be any less authority than the apostle Peter has in the book of Acts. In fact, that's our third point. Acts and the rest of the New Testament shows these other individuals exercising authority over Peter at times. Paul will rebuke Peter in Galatians 2. Peter surely doesn't have primacy over Paul. Neither does he over others in the early church. In Acts 11, the other apostles and, and, quote, brothers are holding Peter accountable. He's gone and he's ministered to the Gentiles and he has to come back and he's reporting to them. And they're holding them accountable. He doesn't have a primacy over all of them. In Acts 15, there's a meeting of the leaders of the early church and Peter makes a speech there about his ministry to the Gentiles but what's fascinating is that that doesn't seal the deal with all of those that are gathered there in Acts 15. No, they call Paul and Barnabas to make a report about their ministry among the Gentiles and what wonders and works they saw Jesus do, or Jesus do in the midst of these Gentiles by His Spirit. But you know what really seals the deal in Acts 15? is when James rises. And when James speaks to the issue, he offers the definitive words on the subject, and then all the apostles and all the elders agree. If Peter had greater authority than the council, would have ended as soon as he spoke at the very beginning. Fourth, if all that's not enough, the context makes it abundantly clear. 
the man Peter is not the foundation of the church because he fails in the very next account. It's as if the, the Gospels and, and God is trying to point out to us, make it very clear, it's not the man Peter. On the heels of his making that bold confession, you are the Christ, you are the Son of the living God, then Jesus begins to tell them of his death, how he must suffer and how he must die, and how he must be buried, and how on the third day he shall be resurrected. And Peter takes Jesus' side and he rebukes him. He goes from bold confession to, to touting error. And Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. If the church is built upon the foundation of the man Peter, then within minutes it's already crumbling. Finally, Peter himself doesn't believe he's in a position above the rest. He calls himself in 1 Peter 5.1, quote, a fellow elder. He calls himself a bondservant of Christ in 2 Peter 1.1. He doesn't claim any distinct title. He doesn't claim any distinct honor. He doesn't claim any distinct submission. In fact, he admonishes everyone in 1 Peter 5 to, quote, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It turns the church absolutely on its head to say that one is above the rest. There is some kind of rank within the body of Christ. As has been said, the ground at the foot of the cross is level ground. We are all sinners. There's no rank in the church. Now listen, there are different giftings. There are some that are more gifted than others, that have more gifts than others. Some that the Lord uses more mightily than others. But none has a greater rank than any other. All the silly jokes about Peter standing at the gates of heaven and deciding who comes in and who doesn't, they are just that. They're silly jokes. But we also need to avoid the extreme that Protestants often fall into. Many have tried to make hay out of the fact that Petros is a, a mere stone, they say, and Petra the feminine form speaks of a, a great mountain or a great rock. And that is silly. There's an overreaction that Protestants have said that, that they make, that when they look at this passage, they say that this has nothing to do with Peter, but it does have to do with Peter. The you is emphatic here. He says, you... You are Peter. As Leon Morris, a New Testament scholar, said, he said, quote, we must not separate the man from the words he has just spoken. Jesus is making it clear that the foundation on which he will build the church is not Peter in the abstract, but Peter the apostle who has confessed Jesus as the Christ. That's the context. And as one of the apostles, and as the spokesman of the apostles, he just confessed that Jesus is the Christ. 
This is the rock. The rock is the confession of Jesus as Messiah. It is faith-filled confession proclaimed by the apostles that Jesus builds his church upon. And that makes sense with the rest of the scriptures as well. This isn't the only place where this metaphor is used. In 1 Corinthians 3, we see that Jesus Christ himself is the foundation on which the church is built. When we get over to Ephesians 2, we see that the apostles and the prophets are the foundation with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And Revelation 21 seems to claim or infer that exact same thing. And that's the point. It's faith-filled confession proclaimed by the apostles that Jesus builds his church upon. Every time you and I read from this word and we believe it, we're noting the foundation of the church. Our second point, much shorter, the church's promise. Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against the church that he's building. There are really two promises there in this text. There's one that's, let's say, inferred, and there's one that's very clear. The one that's inferred or that implied here is that there will be war and battle. Jesus is saying something will not prevail against the church. He can only say that because something is seeking to prevail against the church. And so as long as the church exists in this world, it will be combated. It will be stormed. It will be assaulted. It will be attacked. And therefore, this should not come as a surprise to us when it occurs. It's just this morning, got up early this morning to think through this text a little more and pray through it a little more and just got on web to look at the news real quick this morning and I saw a, a story that someone was putting out that a group of chaplains in the United States Armed Forces have filed a complaint against a fellow chaplain, actually their superior. Because he sent out in digital format the book that John Piper just wrote on the coronavirus. And so they want the armed forces to bring charges against him. They want him court-martialed. Because how dare he spread this Christian propaganda among all the chaplains that he sent this book to. The World Watch List over the last year calculates that 2,983 Christians have been killed for their faith. That 9,488 churches and other Christian buildings have been attacked. That 3,711 believers have been arrested or sentenced or imprisoned without any form of trial. The church will be attacked. The church will be assaulted. But here's the clear promise of this text. 
the church will always persevere. But not only persevere, but have victory. The gates of hell or Hades will not prevail against it, Jesus says. What Christ builds lasts. What are these gates of hell or gates of Hades? Well, there have been different interpretations over the years. It could be a reference to, um, to Satan and his demons leaving hell where they dwell and coming out of the gates and assaulting the church as they come out. It's a possibility. It could refer to gates in an ancient city where the place where the leaders of the city would gather and they would make judgments. And so it could refer to the leadership of the forces of darkness, Satan and his chief demons. But I tend to believe that it refers to death. And it is a reference to Hades that, that seeks to swallow the church, it seeks to kill it, seeks to bring death to bear upon it. But death cannot have victory over the church because the church cannot die. It forever lives. It forever perseveres. He promises it. Isn't that astounding? At the very start of the New Testament church, even before he has been raised from the grave, he promises that the church shall endure forever. Nothing and no one can stand against the church. Sure, for a time. But Christ's church always endures while everything else passes away. It can't be destroyed. It can't be destroyed by philosophy, by wars, by university professors, by false religions, even by false teachers within its midst. It always continues. I was watching a, a documentary this week about people who served in the White House and, and working in the White House and what that was like. And they talked about how there's always kind of a buzz in the air because they know what they're doing is important. There was one woman that was being interviewed and she said something along these lines. She said, you know what you're doing is important and everyone knows that it's important. And so you're willing to put in extra hours. You're willing to go without sleep. You're willing to skip meals. Because what you do at the White House impacts the world. The people in that documentary that were sacrificing 
all kinds of earthly things to work at the White House. Because it impacts the world. And yet even the labors of the White House don't last forever. Because America won't last forever. But the church does. I wonder if you believe that. I don't mean just a head nod, believe. But I mean live your life like you believe it, believe it. Do you believe that the church endures forever, as Jesus says? I wish we all lived more like we believed it. Wish I did. you believe something will last forever, you give it more thought, you give it more energy, you sacrifice more for it, you give it a greater place of importance. I want to, all the days of my life, increase in my belief of this and to manifest itself in my living. So many in the history of the world that have labored so hard for what they believe would last. The Egyptian monarchy was going to last forever. And so they built in the Valley of the Kings and they built the pyramids as a, a lasting sign forever that it was going to reign forever. The Roman Empire was going to last forever. As an institution, it would keep going and going. It had the Roman army and it had the Roman Senate. The League of Nations was built to last forever. All the major countries of the world had bought in. It was going to bring peace forever. And every single one of them faded and crumbled to dust because of barbarians, because of wars, because of internal conflict, because of time but not the church. The church endures forever. This is the only institution that endures forever, no matter what it faces. Why? Not because some man sits in Rome, but because there is one who sits enthroned above who is king and reigns over heaven and earth, and he is the head of the church. And the head of the church has said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against my bride. And he has all authority. And he has all power. And so nothing, nothing can destroy his bride. Nothing. It endures forever. That is worth investing in. That is worth yielding yourself to. That is worth pouring out your life for. Isn't it fascinating that Peter makes this confession, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God. And Jesus doesn't just say, well done, Peter. He gives thanks to the Father for revealing it to Peter. And then he tells Peter about the institutional church. 
Because each of these apostles are going to pour out their lives for that church. That's what they're called to. When you confess, I'm the Christ, Jesus is saying, you are also yielding yourself to the church to serve her. You're united to her. Let us live like it. Finally, let us see the church's authority. Jesus says here that, quote, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. In the midst of this warfare, as the church is being assaulted, the keys are given to the church. This is incredibly encouraging. To loose and to bind. What do keys do? Well, they, they open and they close. Keys open and close. They open, loose. They close, they bind. And he's giving those keys to the apostles. Now, the imagery here is not just of some kind of doorman that, that opens the door and closes the door with a key, but rather of a steward. And think about it in the Old Testament, David, when he lived in the king's house as the king of Israel, there was a steward of his house. And that steward of the house was the man that would decide whether someone could come into the house or whether someone was barred from the house. He would let them in or he would exclude them. He would allow them to gain entrance or he would forbid them. And as he opened the door or didn't open the door, they could come into the throne room or were excluded from David's throne room. The ability to admit and to exclude in Luke 11, Jesus uses the same terms, and it's very helpful, and it helps to explain what these keys are. Jesus is rebuking there the teachers of the law, the, the men that were to tell the people the truth of God, the, the Scriptures, and He says this, He says, because, quote, you have taken away the key of knowledge, quote, you've taken away the key of knowledge. And then he says, you did not enter yourselves and you hindered, hindered those from entering. How? How did they, they hinder themselves from coming in? And how did they prevent others from coming in? By keeping knowledge from them. There's wonderful encouragement here. Forces of hell are waging war against the church, and yet Jesus is giving the keys to the leaders of the church so that people can enter the everlasting kingdom of their Lord where there is peace, where there is provision, where there is safety. Leaders are to care for the church, and they are to welcome people in. What are these keys? That opened the door to the kingdom. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. The teaching of the scriptures, the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
When Jesus sends the disciples out into the world, he gives them that commission. And he says, go, therefore, and make disciples. And he says, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. It's the free offer of the gospel. And those who receive it are allowed in. Those who don't receive it are excluded. It's telling that immediately following this passage, Jesus then gives the gospel, doesn't he? He immediately tells them of his need to suffer and of his death and of his burial and of his resurrection. They can only exercise the keys as they understand and apply the gospel. And it is... It is a shared authority that Jesus is giving them. This isn't just about Peter. No, again in Matthew 18, verse 18, just a couple of chapters later, Jesus repeats the same thing, and he, he says that he is giving the keys to all of them. They're to bind and they're to loose. They're to proclaim the truth of God's Word, they are to uphold the Scriptures. This is why the early church there in Acts 2 is devoting themselves not to the apostles, but to the apostles' teachings. And then the apostles go out, and what do they do when they go out? They start appointing elders in every place. That is their mission, because that is the next phase of the church. And the apostles no longer exist, and now you have these elders that are exercising the keys of the kingdom. They're safeguarding the church. They're admitting. And they are barring those who profane the gospel. If someone doesn't believe the gospel, then they don't enter. If they do believe, then the door is open. This is why... Our elders interview people for membership in the Presbyterian Church in America and here at University Reformed Church. It's not that the elders are saying to the person, we're proclaiming that you're a believer and so therefore you're allowed to go to heaven. That's not what's happening. But rather they're coming alongside of, they're hearing the testimony of did they receive the gospel truth? Did they receive the faith? And the elders are coming alongside of, and they're looking at their life, and they're looking at their good profession and confession. And then they're saying, we, we confirm it. We agree from what we can tell. And so come on in and enjoy all the blessings of being a, a child of God and being a member of the bride of Christ. This is why the elders practice church discipline. When a life is not showing what it professes, the elders are to discipline. They are to rebuke. And if rebuking is not enough, then they are to suspend somebody from the table. And if suspension from the table is not enough, then they are to excommunicate. They are to then cast them out. They are to bind them. Because they're showing that they didn't receive the gospel by the way that they are living. Many of you uh, 
over the years, last few years since we've come into the PCA have asked, and it's probably one of the questions I most often get here at URC about what we do and why we do it. It's, why is it when we do the table, do we use those words that our book of church order requires in the Presbyterian Church of America? I'm required to do. To say that if you are a member of a Bible-believing church or an evangelical church, then you're more than welcome at this table. It's a free offer. It's not about being a member of URC. You can be a member of any Bible-proclaiming church, any evangelical church, and you're welcome at the table. It's an open table. But that's part of the requirement. Why? Because all three of these things fit together, and you see that here. The elders are to oversee the proclamation of the word. They are to safeguard gospel truth. They are to be those who exercise church discipline, wield the keys of the kingdom. And part of that is tied to the ordinances, to the sacraments. Because part of discipline is saying that someone is suspended from the sacrament or even excommunicated from the church and can't partake of what the body of Christ partakes of because they haven't shown evidence of receiving the gospel. And so those things are tied together. The elders oversee. They know who they are overseeing as members. That people have submitted themselves to the God-ordained means in the church to oversee their souls. And that faithful men are looking over those souls in the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments and are exercising church discipline, the three marks of the church, and are helping to safeguard the people of God. Paul will say of elders that they are under shepherds, that they're stewards of the mysteries of the gospel. That's what they are. They are stewards. The more that we grow in the Christian life, the more that we come to appreciate the, the government that our Lord Jesus has set within the church. I'm so thankful that He is the King and Head of the church. That it's not some single man somewhere. That it's not some group of men somewhere. That it's not me. But that it's Him. And then He appoints and ordains multiple men to rule over local bodies and to rule together. There is not one above another. There's equality in that ruling. And that he rules over the church through them. There's great wisdom in that. The more I grow in Christ, the more I see the wisdom of that. And the more I love it. I'm so thankful that we have elders like that here at URC. And that are concerned about the sound preaching of the word, building upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and who are serious about the administration of the sacraments, the mysteries, stewards of the mysteries of God, and are serious about church discipline and understand their responsibility to bind and to loose.
to give. Not one to be taken for granted. None above another, but all under Christ, ruling together, pouring out their lives for the sake of the people of God. The other great reminder of this passage for me, at least for me, is the beauty of the church. She's often battered. She's often bruised. She's often, let's just be honest, unlovely. She has warts. She's disfigured in so many ways. And yet she is beautiful. She's so beautiful. She's ever there. And she ever perseveres. And though she is not yet perfect, she shall be one day. And she will always continue. She is worth pouring out your life for. Because he is worth pouring out your life for. Let's live like it. Let's pray together. Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, give you praise that you are King and Head of the Church. There's no other head we would want to be under. And we are thankful that you preserve the church forevermore. The gates of hell shall not prevail against her. And we're thankful that you continue to care for the church through those that you have appointed as under shepherds. We're thankful that you continue to raise up godly men, generation after generation, to care for your sheep. And we pray that you would continue to do so. We pray, O oh Lord Jesus, that we would be people that fall more in love with you, that submit ourselves more and more to you as Christ and Lord and King and Head of the Church. You come to love your bride all the more, pouring out our life for that which is lasting, for your glory and praise. In Christ's name we pray, amen.